That was good. Some of us did that. So tonight we're going to hear another talk. Uh, we have the first three talks of our series are a little bit more on the way that we worship in SPO and kind of our approach, um, particularly to uh, the charismatic gifts and, uh, and, to, and to worship. Uh, so we're going to hear from John Stevenson tonight. He's going to talk to us about our charismatic and liturgical spirituality. So um, that's a mouthful. Uh, there's a lot that we're going to learn tonight. Actually, really what we're going to do is try to actually have a strong foundation that gets built. So John's talk might not be the most rah-rah kind of talk, but there's actually a lot of really good content and meat for us to be able to chew on over the next couple weeks. So uh, we all know John. Uh, let's just up and, uh, invite him up and pray with him. Yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, man, just welcome the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus. Jesus, we praise you. Give you glory and honor, Lord. Holy, holy are you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your son, John. We ask that you would anoint his words, Lord, that they would pierce our hearts. Lord, we pray that your words would speak through him, Lord, in all, in all spirit and in all truth, Lord, that we'd be convicted, um, Lord, and that we would learn how to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Yeah. I spit on my gum. It's not good. Yeah. Woo! That was on my that was on me. Um, you're all awake? You're awake. Good. So Ellie's story, the other Ellie. Um, we talked about how her first word was hot, right? Well it's like only gone up from there. Not in the number of words she said, just in the intensity and the time she says the word, the word hot. So she has a couple others, but it's not that impressive. She babbles a lot. But anyways, so one of her favorite books is this book called The Bear Snores On. Okay? And, uh, and a guy comes over sometimes and reads it with her when he's at the house. And he noticed that the other day, he, they'd open it up. And the point of the book is that this bear is sleeping while his friends come into this cave and, like, have a party without him. And they make this stew and tea. And, like, they have fun. The bear wakes up. And he's, like, sad because they had a party without him. Um, but then there's redemption at the end. Don't worry. <laughs> and uh, so Ellie opens up this book. And the first thing she does is she points right to the fire and says, hot. He's like, yeah, good job. She's getting abstract concepts of the concept of hot down, right? And here's the next page you read, and she goes, hot. And then she points to the cup of tea and goes, hot. She points to the stew and goes, hot. And the fire and goes, hot. And then the next page, same deal, hot, hot, hot. And it's really impossible to read the book without her pointing out everything that is hot on every single page. So she's progressing. Uh, another highlight of my week. So I actually, my Anna, my wife, and I got to go to The Price is Right on Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually in town. I don't know if you guys knew that. So it was at the Ohio Theater. I'm a big, who's a big fan of The Price is Right? It is, okay, if, you, if you're not, you, you must not have been sick during grade school and stayed home and watched it every time. Uh, it's an incredible show. And uh, so it was here, and I was driving to work, like kind of, kind of excited, like a little giddy, like I'm going to Price is Right tonight, I can't wait. And my first thought, if you watch the show, they, they spin the wheel, and you know that when you spin the wheel, um, Bob, now Drew Carey, asks you, like, uh, who do you want to give a shout-out to? I was like, man, who would I say if he asked me that question? And, like, honest truth, the first thing that popped into my mind was my childhood baseball hero, Rusty Greer. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me or my subconscious. It wasn't my wife. It wasn't Jesus. It was 
my childhood baseball hero, Rusty Greer. And then I'm telling Anna this because I'm surprised by it. And this is how I know I married the right woman. And I tell her this until the Rusty Greer. She goes, what about Tony Romo? And I was like, you're right. That's who I should do. Tony Romo. Genius, my other hero. So that's, that's how you know you got a winner there, when she knows your heart that well. Okay. It has nothing to do with this talk. But here we go. So we're talking about our charismatic and liturgical spirituality. So as Joe said, this is going to be, we're going to be going pretty fast here. Um, you got a wide open outline. Take notes as the Spirit leads. I'm going to try to keep us moving here. But there's going to be a lot of content. Okay, and the first thing I want to say, you got, you got some fill in the blanks at the top there. And this is, this is like the central theme of this talk, okay? First slide. We are going to bite off more than we can chew. You can write that in there, right at the top there. That's, that's what goes in the fill the blank, okay? So there's a lot to both of these, right? And I'm not going to pretend to stand up here and explain everything to you guys. What I hope to do is actually stir some things up that the Lord's speaking to you at this season in your life right now and us actually corporately, and then we can actually start to go somewhere together. So the meat or the fruit of this talk, if you will, is going to happen outside of here. And things are going to happen tonight. Things are going to move inside of you tonight because the Lord is present, amen? But so that's what we're hoping on. And then the fact is we're going to bite off more than we can chew. Okay, so if you leave here like, man, that's great, but he didn't really talk about this. You're like, well, what about this? How does this fit in? Awesome questions. Start discussing them, okay? Let's keep diving in. Let's not leave this talk just here today. So, charismatic and liturgical spirituality. The goal is that I want to give us a new lens on what these words mean, okay? A new way to kind of approach them and think about them. Because we hear those words, we kind of have this idea of what that might mean. We think charismatic, or we think people walking out of rooms with wheelchairs, you know? We hear liturgical, you might think mass. But there's so much more to those words than just those things. And then spirituality. I want to define that right off the bat. Okay, spirituality in some ways is our piety. It's like the way that we pray, if you will. And in some ways, it's also like the lens in which we view really our faith, right, God. It's also the way we live. So it kind of spills over from vertical and it kind of spills into our life. Like a Benedictine spirituality, if you will. Like pray and work, right? We know a Benedictine spirituality. It like kind of influences, yeah, how they pray and how they live life together, but also how they live their life, like in the fields, working. And it permeates all that they do. So we talk about spirituality. It's not just in church, our disposition towards God, but it permeates more than that. Good. So here we go. Starting to bite off more than we can chew. We're going to start with covenants, the old covenant, okay? That's how, that's, we're talking about salvation history here. That's where you got to start, right? We're talking about our charismatic spirituality. We're starting with the beginning. So God's action, right? God's first thing he did was he made a covenant with Adam and Eve, okay? And I love this. Someone explained this to me one time. It, was, it blew my mind. But each covenant gets a little bit bigger. So God binds himself to his two people, and it keeps getting larger and larger and larger. So first one, Adam and Eve, a couple. Second one is Noah. And that one, he made a covenant with a family, right? That was actually in the mass readings today, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah let's go. Abraham, that was a tribe, right? Abraham kind of had like a cohort with him. It wasn't just Abraham. It was his family and like all of his servants and so on and so forth. And the next was Moses. That was like a people, right? Like Israel. And then we get even bigger than that. We go to like a nation. That was David, right? David, David had the nation. And then when we go from there, we go to Jesus, and it's the whole world. Pretty cool, huh? It's like God had a plan or something. Weird. <laughs> so what we're going to focus on, though, is we're going to focus on Moses. Because that's kind of, when we hear about the Old Covenant, that's kind of the one you're mainly referring to. The one with Moses and, yeah, so... 
Here we go. Did you guys know there is an OG Pentecost? Like, Pentecost is actually a Jewish feast before it was a Christian feast. Okay? It's actually, it's actually, Pentecost means 50, right? It took place 50 days after Passover. And what it was, was it was a harvest festival where people would bring their first fruits of the wheat harvest to the temple, and then they would uh, also commemorate the giving of the Torah. So, next slide. We're going to read it. This is from the Jewish Virtual Library. Straight from the source. Here we go. It says, Pentecost, in the Old Testament, and thus in the Jewish tradition, is the second of the three major festivals, which celebrates the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai to Moses and the Israelites. The period between Passover and Pentecost is a time of great anticipation. It is 50 days after Passover. The, the counting reminds us of the important connection between Passover and Pentecost. Passover freed us physically from bondage, but the giving of the Torah on Pentecost redeemed us spiritually from our bondage to idolatry and immorality. It's pretty rich stuff, huh? You guys are probably picking up, some of you are picking up where I'm going here. So Pentecost actually wasn't just an Acts 2 thing. It was, it was a promise God started with the Israelites way back when, okay? So what I love about the Pentecost too, I love the two aspects Tanya talks about. It talks about it's the, it's the festival that you bring your sacrifice of wheat, the first fruits of your wheat. So there's a sacrificial element to it, but also a commemoration of God's redeeming work. And what it says here, um, a couple of things I want to point out, God's saving action. In, in Exodus, it says, God says, you have seen what I did and how I brought you to myself. That's Passover, right? That's the Exodus. So God finds his people, identifies them, and brings them out of slavery, physically. Physically brings them out of slavery, right? So there's a physical taking them out of Egypt. So God delivered them, and they experienced the saving action. So God initiated this. The second thing I want to say is it's an us. It's a communal thing. It's a people, right? And he did this corporately for a reason. So the reason was so these people could be freed from this physical bondage, but also, as it says up here, redeems us spiritually from our bondage to idolatry and immorality. So it's physical, but it's also on a deeper level. Okay, so God wanted to initiate something powerful here. And what did he do to initiate that? He made a covenant, right? He made a covenant with these people. So, we're moving, we're moving. In order to make a people, God made a covenant. So, this is what he said. He said he would do this covenant. He would do this thing so that the Israelites would be his own possession among all the peoples. This is straight from Exodus. I will be your God and you will be my people. In describing these new people, this new, uh, this new nation that he was creating, he said they would be, quote, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So the Israelites, in other words, would have true knowledge of who God is and how he acts, right? And what that means is, if they have true knowledge of God, that means they're able to worship him. Because when we have true knowledge of God, we're able to worship him. So God was making a people for himself that worshiped him, okay? And then that was, that was kind of God's offer, right? Was the law, like this covenant, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you'll be a holy nation, royal priests. But you guys got Ten Commandments, that's your end of the bargain, right? And that's the covenant, right? This is what God was offering. A covenant is this solemn promise, right? It's bigger than just a contract. I don't sign it. It's, 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 comes from, it's divine, and it's also it's more eternal. It's bigger than just a contract. And God made this covenant that bound himself to these people. The promise, right, to be with them forever. Holy nation, royal priests, Ten Commandments. You do this, that's your end of the bargain. This is my end of the bargain. God's not going to break it. How are we going to do? And that's the question, right? So, recap. Next one. 
God wants to draw close to us. That's what he communicated to the Israelites, right? By rescuing them, right? And then bringing them and then offering to be with them, giving them the Ten Commandments to establish that relationship with them ongoing. So he wants, to come to know, he wants us to come to know him as he really is and us to live as his people, which is synonymous with worshiping him, correct? So, good. So what's, what's the problem here? The problem here is, well, it's sin. Well, it's, the Israelites failed, right? So what, happened, what ultimately happened was they fell so far that God allowed the temple to be destroyed and then carried off to Babylon and slavery, right? That's, that's where this went. But it's also kind of our story, is it not? God offers us these promises, says, I'll be with you forever, and then we fall short, correct? We blow it. We mess up because we can't live up to it. So sin separates us from God, and sin is still around, so there's still separation from God. So here's the problem. The problem I propose is that it's the fact that we lack true knowledge of God, right? When, when we sin, when we mess up, is it not that we just lack true knowledge of God? Is that like the heart of it in a way? So when I choose something that's not of the Lord, why do I do that? Because I, maybe I don't trust God to come through for me there, right? So I'm going to grasp for this thing, take it into my control. And maybe these idols we have in our lives, uh, maybe idols of comfort, idols of control, and these could be things as simple as are like attached to our future. Maybe my plans, what I have for myself. We say, God, like, I don't think you actually have a plan for this, so I'm going to take care of this. Uh, can, you, can you sign off on my plans, please? Right? And we take control. We grasp it for ourselves. We don't actually hand it over to him. We don't walk with him. And so what happens if you say, we choose comfort, we choose radical individualism, security, our plan, control, false ideas of freedom. If you kind of put all these things together, you have like the summation of human suffering, right? These are the causes of human suffering through the history of time. Is this separation from God's, not trusting in God's goodness and what he has for us. So God gave the law, right? The Ten Commandments. But the problem was they were written on tablets. They weren't written on hearts. They didn't seep any deeper than these tablets. People could try to follow them like we could try to follow them. But the fact is we fall short. We mess up. We can't uphold that into the bargain because our hearts betray us. Because we don't have what we need to fulfill it. We don't have what we need to make it happen. We fall short. So God has an answer to that problem. That's, that's basically the Old Testament summed up right there. It's we fall short, right? And in some ways it's our story. But God has to give an answer to that, and he does. He actually tells about it in the Old Testament in the midst of while the, while the Israelites are in Babylon, while it was terribly dark and a horrible place, God spoke words of, of hope. Let's go to the next slide. This is Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do we see how ridiculous this is? Like Israelites in captivity, all they've known is just failing God. And they, they yearn to be back into Jerusalem where they can worship God in the temple because there's a separation there and their lives are... In, their lives are hurting, they're enslaved, they're in the wrong country, 
And God is saying, hey, stuff's going to change. Stuff's going to shift. And they're 1,800-something years away from this happening. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. What God's promising here, guys, is that he would change us interiorly. So while the Ten Commandments were exterior, he's going to actually write the Ten Commandments on our hearts. That's the promise. And who's going to do that? His spirit's going to do that. Right? That's what we're talking about here. We see the old covenant being fulfilled in the new covenant. So moving on. The fulfillment, this is, this is scripture. This is Paul. He says, we have a new covenant, right? Not in a written code, but in the spirit. For the written code kills, but the spirit gives life. And the spirit, brothers and sisters, is God's own life living in us. Amen? Amen. The spirit is God's promise. The spirit is what changes the game. The spirit shifts our hearts. The spirit gives us true knowledge of God. We have true knowledge of God. We can actually worship God from a place of intimacy with him, right? And then what happens is our hearts are changed. And what happens is our actions are changed. Our lives begin to change. Our view begins to change. The more we worship, the more we're changed. The more we see God as he actually is and this builds on itself. Right? That's what we're looking at here. So the Spirit empowers us to live a covenantal relationship with God. I'll say that again. The Spirit, God's Spirit, allows us to successfully live a covenantal relationship with God. So in the old Pentecost, that God promised this. He gives the Ten Commandments. We failed. He said, you failed, but I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to teach you how to be my people. I'm going to show you who I really am. And I'm not just going to give you tablets. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to give you myself, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in you. It's a pretty good deal. Can I get a head nod? Yeah, pretty good deal. So here's, here's a statement. You ready for this statement? I don't think you guys are. Are you ready for the statement? Okay. So it is the Holy Spirit that gives us new life, right? It is the Holy Spirit that gives us new life. And if we believe that the Holy Spirit is for all Christians, do we agree with that? The Holy Spirit is for all Christians? Then a charismatic spirituality is for all Christians. Whoa, whoa, John, John. So I mean every Christian needs to be a prayer meeting. Not what I'm saying. So let's, let's, let's pause here for a second. What I mean when I say charismatic is to live a life completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what I mean when I say charismatic. And the fact is, there's many different expressions of it, right? In SPO, we have a particular expression of our charismatic spirituality, correct? But, you know, okay, yeah, there's prayer meetings, right? There's stuff like healings. We hear charismatic, we think of people walking around rooms with wheelchairs. We think of um, fan to flame, maybe. We think of worship sets. You know, but the fact is, the Holy Spirit is what enables us to live a victorious Christian life in the first place. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing works. Amen? Are we, are we convinced of that? Like, we actually don't hold up our end of the... We can't, we can't be Christians without the Holy Spirit. That's what makes it happen. That's what gives us that inner transformation to allow us to live in covenantal relationship with God. To be successful Christians, it's the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's the Spirit that allows us to be God's people. Um, got a couple quotes here. What's the next one? Okay, the church is charismatic. Again, we have these ideas of charismatic in our head. And you read that, you might be like, John, too far. Remember, what we're saying here is that it means the church is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Completely 
in some ways. No, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. This is a quote. The Spirit was given so that God could have a people who were in an effective covenant relationship with him, who loved him and loved one another because they had proper knowledge of God, the law being written on their hearts, and because they had been given life and power through the Holy Spirit to do so. It made the Christian life possible. Um, next slide. It is the Spirit, and this is a little more theological here. You guys ready for this? Okay, it is the Spirit who makes present Christ, and more precisely, Christ's sacrifice, his offering to the Father in each of our hearts. So Catholicism is about having a relationship with God the Father, participating in the Son, which is only possible by the Holy Spirit. See the Trinitarian structure there? That's really what Catholicism is about, is it not? Okay, to head on, you guys agreeing with me? Am I, am I off track? Okay, I think, I think we're right down the fairway here. So here's, here's a good one. It's one of my favorites. It's, it's really small, but it's really good. And this is St. Pope John Paul II, May 27, 1998. Um, I put what to Google if you want to look it up. It's the World Congress of Ecclesial Movements and New Communities. He says, let's read it together. Whenever the Spirit intervenes, he leaves people astonished. Whenever the Spirit intervenes, he leaves people astonished. He brings about events of amazing newness. He radically changes persons in history. This was the unforgettable experience of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, during which, under the guidance of the same Spirit, the Church rediscovered the charismatic dimension as one of her constitutive elements. It's a fun word. I'll get to say it again. Hopefully. It is not only through the sacraments and the ministrations of the church that the Holy Spirit makes holy the people. Read that again. What's he saying? Remember, it's the saint, guys. It's the saint. He says, It is not only through the sacraments and the ministrations of the church that the Holy Spirit makes holy the people, leads them and enriches them with his virtues, allotting his gifts according as he wills. He also distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. Lumen Gentium, that's a Vatican II document. The institutional and charismatic aspects are coessential, as it were, to the church's constitution. The institutional and charismatic aspects are coessential, as it were, to the church's constitution. So that's St. John Paul II talking about this. The charismatic elements are essential to the church's constitution. And again, it doesn't mean John Paul II is saying we all need to be going to prayer meetings all the time. But we are saying is we, every single Christian needs to be fearlessly open to the Holy Spirit. Right? And we know, sitting in this room, being SPO, that being fearlessly open to the Holy Spirit, sometimes for us, especially us who are called to be here right now, means we've got to push the boundaries sometimes in our faith. Right? It means we need to step out sometimes and say, come Holy Spirit, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do this thing anyways. Maybe that's as simple as hands in a prayer meeting, or maybe as simple as being nudged to talk to someone today. Like, I was getting ready for this talk. It was 5 o'clock this evening. This afternoon, and uh, I had a buddy uh, from college. He's a year younger than me. He texts me. He says, hey, man, give me a call when you get a chance. And it was 5 o'clock, and I really need to go through this talk some more. And uh, I, was, I felt a little nudge, so I shot him a call. And uh, his name is David. He's a good dude. He's married. He's had a second kid. He lives down in Pinehurst, Texas. He has a thick old accent. He used to drive a big Bronco in college, and now he has some jacked-up truck. He works construction. Uh, but he was talking to me. He's a good, good Catholic dude. Uh, and he's talking to me, he was having a crisis of faith. I was like, here we go, it's 5 o'clock Thursday, I'm giving a talk in two hours, and come Holy Spirit. And I, I prayed that multiple times at the conversation, because he's just pouring his heart out to me how much trouble he's having with the Catholic Church. 
how much trouble he was having. And I was just relying on the Holy Spirit. I was like, I, on, to be honest with you, I didn't, want, I didn't want to be talking to him right then. Like a part of me, a part of me was really thankful because I love this guy. Part of me was like, I got a million other things to do. And I know this conversation is not going to be a 10-minute conversation. And uh, but I was just praying, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, what do you need? And I found myself multiple times. And at one point in the conversation, I was like, I have no idea what to say here. And I heard the Lord say to me, you're going to be surprised at what I tell you to say. <laughs> and I said something, and I was. I was like, okay, here we go. I had no idea what to say, but the Lord gave me the words, right? And he works in it. And I was proclaiming truth to this guy, truth that I hadn't thought about before, but the Lord was giving me words to speak. So in some ways, I was stepping out, and the Lord was meeting me there. We all have these experiences in our life, do we not? And that's what we're talking about here. These charismatic elements being open to the Holy Spirit. It's not just a passive thing. It's sometimes, it's always, for, in, in our spirituality, it's also an active thing. Not always, but it's, mo- it's largely an active thing. When we step out, God shows up. I want to connect this back here to is the element of the sacrifice and the first fruits. So, next slide. So that's a desert, right? Can you guys see that? Kind of, yeah. So, what you know about a desert is actually right underneath the ground, there are millions of seeds. Millions of seeds. In some ways, we've heard this from Fan to Flame before, but you know, our graces of our baptism and confirmation are sometimes, excuse me, sometimes they're dormant. There it is. <laughs> sometimes they're dormant, right? The grace is there. God is faithful in the grace of baptisms and uh, confirmation. But sometimes those graces aren't dormant because our yes hasn't been given to the Lord. We haven't maybe unlocked that journey of our faith life yet. And he has more for us, right? Because if God gives us all at once, we probably crumble, right? But he gives us more of himself as we grow, as we make ourselves available to him. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and waters those seeds? Next slide. Boom. Same desert. (laughs) Pretty cool, right? Let's go back and forth a little bit to soak in the goodness. Desert. And then Holy Spirit, right? Let's do it again. Yep. Yeah. That is, that is satisfying. So this is where I want to connect in that magnanimous sacrifice. Okay, in the same way that the OG Pentecost, sacrifice and remembering God's covenant was inseparable. The fulfillment of the covenant is no different. Magnanimous sacrifice and receiving the Holy Spirit in a deeper way in our life is inseparable. That's how the Lord works. And he draws us with love. He draws us saying, come after me. I have more for you. There's greater things. Let's do this. I believe in you. I know you. I know what you desire. I created you. Let's do this thing. Let's keep going further, higher. He draws us as so we make greater sacrifices. Sometimes we make huge sacrifices. We make a jump. Sometimes there are little sacrifices throughout the day. But the Lord fills those spaces. The Lord meets us there. The Lord transforms our life. So, I don't know about you guys, but my life doesn't always look like that. Right? Can I get a nod? Yeah. All right, yeah, right. Okay, John, the Holy Spirit is great. Like, that means I'm supposed to be happy all the time? Supposed to be floating around? Well, my question is, what is, what is a mature response to this picture? Tyne and Joe's talking, like that magnanimous sacrifice. What is a mature response to this picture? Because we're, we're, sometimes we're at prayer meetings. I loved Maggie's word last time. She like wasn't in the throne room of God, but she was worshiping him. She was choosing to be there, but then she realized the connection. Like, the person next to me is like going for it. That's amazing. 
And like, I'm connected. We're a family, we're a body. And I, like our prayers are rising to God together. And I don't have to rely on myself. I can actually be plugged into this people. So what, what the mature response is, guys, is when we're not feeling it, we can actually just fall back on to our yes. Like, actually, God, yeah, I choose you. You're, Jesus, you're my Lord. And I follow you with my life. And I know that you're going to bring about the growth in the due season. Because life has seasons, right? Sometimes it's the first season. Let's go back. Sometimes... The Lord allows seasons like this where the seeds can maybe take some root and then as soon as the rain comes, next slide, he allows that to happen. But the thing is, the thing about the rain and the Holy Spirit is we don't control the rain or the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. What we do control is our yes. And that's our mature response. Our mature response is we fall back onto our yes. The Lord hears your yes and honors your yes and is bringing about greater realities from it. Oh, right. That's charismatic. That is our charismatic spirituality. Um, again, my hope here, guys, is to start some conversations and actually to maybe change the lens in which we live a little bit. I don't think the needle's going to move like this today, but I do hope the Lord and the Holy Spirit meets us where we're at and starts to move it over the course of the next few weeks and months of our life. That's what I'm looking for. All right. Liturgical spirituality. John, charismatic and liturgical. Those don't go together. They're different. I don't know if anyone thought that. They're kind of a weird thing to put together. But they're not because they're so uh, complementary. Co-essential. Co-essential. Yeah, thank you. Using the language of the, of the councils. All right, next slide. The structure of the Catholic faith. Does anyone know what it is? It's, like, it's how the catechism follows. The catechism has, well, has four sections, but what are the first three sections of the catechism? I'll tell you. Because <laughs> it's creed, so that we believe in an orthodox way. It's code, that we might live in a moral way. And the last word is cult slash liturgy. Because <laughs> they probably wrote this before that Kool-Aid guy <laughs> to worship in a liturgical way. Believe in an orthodox way, live in a moral way, worship in a liturgical way. That's the structure of the Catholic Church, right? And we talk about creed, cold, code, and cult, and liturgy. So that's how the Catholic Church is structured. So what we're going to focus on is the third. So we might worship in a liturgical way. And, okay, we'll go some definitions. Definitions, next slide. Spirituality, like we talked about, it's how we pray. It's our piety. Yeah, you can, there we go. Which extends to how we live, being spirituality. Next, next definition, it's liturgy. Okay? When we hear liturgy, we probably think mass, right? Yeah, that's liturgy. But actually, liturgy's bigger than that. Not that it's, yeah, okay. Liturgy's a larger word than just mass, okay? So actually, what it means is from the Greek, and it means service or public service. Okay? And it refers to the public or official worship of the church. We talk about liturgy within the context of church. But actually, there's lots of different types of liturgy. We hear about, you know, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist, right? Liturgy of the hours. Yeah? Okay? You know what they're also liturgy of? Liturgy of a Buckeye football game. It sounds, you guys are like, that's John. That's over the top. No, no, it's actually true. The liturgy is actually, it's a public service, right? That's what it says there. Service or public service that intends to, like, get at our affections in a way. And think about it. We show up to a Buckeyes game. It's been a while since I've been to one, but I know, like, dotting the I. That's like, it's an event that happens every game, right? 
And there's a certain music when the team walks out. There's like a ritual to it in a way. Like you kind of like sit down, you know what to expect. And then like halftime, the band performs. And like maybe they go at the beginning of the game, and the national anthem, right? It's a powerful event. And then like the flyover happens. And it moves you. Because it's like, it's a, it's, in some ways, it's a little L, liturgical event. It gets at our affections and our hearts and tra- kind of transforms what we look at and what we value. Who here values Ohio State football? Right? I, in no small part, probably, to your fact that you experience this powerful event. Right? It's not a bad thing. You don't need to be ashamed of it. It's not like, I mean, if you like worship Ohio State as like, you know, your source of happiness, that's a bad thing. But a little out of liturgy, they're all over the place. Right? Okay. So what I want to say here, too, is the public aspect of this is not in contrast to private. Okay? So a liturgy can also be done in private, per se. I know that's confusing, but think of liturgy of the hours. It's possible to pray liturgy of the hours in private. What's happening is you're plugging into a greater reality, are you not? You can do it in private, but it's like plugged into like a larger momentum of the church. All right, next. So, yeah, yeah. So I think you guys would all agree when I say a Catholic spirituality must include a liturgical spirituality. Do you guys agree with that statement? Yes. We kind of start to understand liturgy a little bit more broadly than just like mass. That's not, that's not what the church defines it. Liturgy is obviously liturgy, the word liturgy of the Eucharist. That's like, that's part of it. But when the church says liturgy, it's bigger than just that. Okay? So... When I say that Catholic spirituality must include a liturgical spirituality, that means the way we ought to pray, our piety, like our spirituality, our devotional life as Catholics, ought to be done in a liturgical way. That means it ought to be done in the pattern of the church. How does the church ask us and instruct us to pray? That's what we should be asking. So what does the church say? The church actually gives us some features of a liturgical spirituality. And the first one is sacred scripture. So in order to have a liturgical spirituality, in order to live this out in our life, it needs to be rooted in sacred scripture. So scripture is a central feature of the liturgy. And again, when I say the liturgy, I think, again, we can think mass. That's not exactly what we're talking about. It's broader than that. That's certainly part of it and a very important part of it. But we want to think larger than just that. And what this liturgy does, is it directs our entire prayer life. It directs our gaze. We're talking about that in a second. Quote, catechism, for this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present the faithful, the bread of life, taken from the table of God's word in Christ's body. In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but what it really is, the word of God. Dang it. Sorry, Jesus. Forgive me. Uh, in the sacred books and the scared books, jeez, who proofread this? The Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and walks with them, talks with them. So, yeah, guilty. I tried to copy paste, but I guess I couldn't, so I just typed this and probably could have spent two seconds reading that twice. Um, so, the catechism. The church has venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's own body. That's a powerful statement. That's a big statement. That's how important the the scriptures are central to the liturgy. All right, next one. Catholic spirituality is supposed to be scripturally rooted and expressed. Well, you just said that, John. Well, what I mean by that is that um, our prayers should be drawn from and inspired by scripture. Our songs should be drawn from and inspired by scripture, primarily. It's not like a hard and fast rule if they're not. Yeah. 
uh, are, uh, are the, all these, these songs, these prayers need to be in conformity with Catholic doctrine, right? They need to be characterized, and our prayer and our, our life should be characterized and, uh, by meditations and readings of sacred scripture. So scripture should be in some ways like the center of our prayer life, if you will, right? Next one. Another feature of a liturgical spirituality. The liturgical spirituality follows a pattern of time. So what the church lays out for us. Okay? What I mean by that is we got our daily, weekly, yearly structure of it. And what the church talks about is the daily structure of it is our morning and evening prayer. So liturgy of the hours. That's the daily structure of the liturgy the Lord holds out to us. Our weekly Sunday Eucharist. Right? The source and summit. That's way up there on the pedestal. The, the yearly one is the seasons of the church year. So the church holds us out to us as how to worship liturgically. She has these daily patterns, these weekly patterns, and yearly patterns, because the church in wisdom understands that our lives work in these patterns. We love patterns, right? Amen. amen. We work well with routine. And the, the church knows that, and that's how it's set up. So next slide. This is from... Um, I didn't say this, but this, uh, most of what I'm getting here is from Sacrosanctum Concilium. Did I say that right, Natowski? Is he here? Is, I, is he here? Thanks. It's actually the first document from Vatican II. And Vatican II was a renewal uh, council, right? It was a renewal. It was about, okay, what is the Holy Spirit doing and for the church right now? And the first thing they renewed was the liturgy. Because that is the source. That's why we, that's the same reason we're starting this talk about who's SPO with worship, right? Because that's what's central to the church. And the liturgy is the church's worship, right? So this is the quote. It's really small. Can you guys read that in the back? Yeah, I don't know. She, yeah. I'll read it for you. Would you like me to do that? Yeah. It would be my pleasure. Christ Jesus, high priest of the new and eternal covenant, taking human nature, introduced into this earthly exile that him which is sung throughout all ages in the halls of heaven. Gosh, what a good sentence. It's a great sentence. I'm going to read that again. Christ Jesus, high priest of the new and eternal covenant, taking human nature, introduced into this earthly exile that hymn, which is sung throughout all ages in the halls of heaven. He joins the entire community of mankind to himself, associating it with his own singing of this canticle of divine praise. For he continues his priestly work, through the agency of his church, which is ceaselessly engaged in praising the Lord and interceding for the salvation of the entire world. She does this not only by celebrating the Eucharist, but also in other ways, especially by praying the divine office. So the divine office has a prominent, preeminent, prominent, not preeminent, prominent place in the church, right? Don't confuse what I'm saying. There's something powerful and important, which is why in SPO, we kind of plant our flag on the of the hours, right? Because it's given to us by the church as a way. And think about, go back to the ways, you don't have to go back to the slideshow, but go back in your mind, um, on your sheet, of the different features of liturgical spirituality. It's rooted in scripture, right? Liturgy of the hours rooted in scripture. It's a pretty good job of that, right? It, uh, is it, okay, it's scripture rooted express, and it's also pattern, right? It has this, um, it follows this pattern of time. It has seasons. It has Lent. It has Advent. It has ordinary time. It has different saints, right? In the proper context to the 
larger truths, to the larger truths of Scripture. So, it's, again, you guys probably already know this, but it's not just during Mass that we're living a liturgical spirituality. Here's how it breaks forth more in our life. So Catholicism is Christocentric, not ecclesiocentric. What do I mean when I say that? I mean that the church is centered on Jesus. The church is not centered on the church. Right? The church is centered on Jesus. Because without Jesus, the church doesn't make any sense. Right? So it's only in the light of Christ that we can understand the church. So the catechism uses this analogy. It actually uses the analogy of the moon. We hear a lot with Mary, but it actually uses in the catechism. talks about how the church is the moon. Right? The church reflects God's glory. So the source of any glory in the church is God himself. Right? And then it's reflected on the moon, and then we see that reflection. And so a proper Catholic spirituality actually is more focused on the sun. Am I right? Because that's the source. And you know, old, like ancient people thought that the moon gave off its own light, right? And sometimes we can fall into that trap thinking that gives off, gives off its own light, but actually the moon, the moon is beautiful and glorious. It's glorious because of Jesus. Right? Can I get a head nod? Yeah. And that's the source. And that's what this sacred scripture, this liturgical spirituality, points us back to constantly is the hierarchy of truths. Who's heard that before? And it's been used in many different ways. And you can, you can totally abuse it if you wanted to. But that's not what I'm going to do. But the hierarchy of truths is a concept that says that there are some truths that build on each other. Right? So let's say you've got to build a house. What do you do first? The foundation. Right? You pour the foundation. You put up some framing. You can't do the roof until you do the piping. Right? And you've got to do the drywall. Like, there's, there's, there's ways things move. And the hierarchy of truths, the highest truth in the Catholic Church is in the Christian faith is, is the Trinity. Right? It starts with the Trinity. Without the Trinity, nothing makes sense. That's the Son. And then you go to the incarnation, right? That this perfect and infinite God became man, right? And then not only become man, he became a baby. He started, started from the bottom. And then he became 30, and then he started public ministry. He started laying down, showing his, like, redeeming mankind, working miracles. And then he decided that he was going to die. He's going to take the pain, the suffering, and the wrath that was reserved for us and die. And then after he died, he rose again. And then when he rose again, he ascended to the Father. And then when he ascended to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the core of our faith. That's the gospel message, right? And that's what we want to focus on. We have the liturgical spirituality. That's what it's constantly pointing us back to is the Paschal mystery, right? What is Mass, right? That pointing towards that. What is the hours that pointing us towards that? So these things are immovable in our life, and they actually should inform our prayer, our private devotion should be informed by this liturgical spirituality, this participation in these higher realities, this hierarchy of truths. So what do we do? Land in the plane here. Well, we pray according to the pattern of the church, right? And any devotions we do, which there's some really good devotions out there, they're good in as far, in so far, as they participate in really the sun, to use our analogy, right? We don't worship the moon. We worship the sun. The moon is beautiful, and we respect the moon and love the moon, but we, it's, it's the, the devotions we do are good insofar as they point us back to the sun, to the source. And that's what a liturgical spirituality safeguards us of. 
And that's what the church gives us in their wisdom. Says, no, no, yeah, yeah, we're great. It's, we shine. It's beautiful. But that's where we get it from. And that's who you got to talk to. Right? What else do we do? Okay, yeah, we pray, and, and uh, we learn to pray liturgy of the hours. So it's our model for our prayer. Why? Well, because it has these psalms, right? It has scripture readings, proper honorings of the saints, and Mary's petition, thanksgiving, and prayers. We kind of see a model for our prayer within these, right? All these elements. Next. Actually, well, that might be it. Morning and evening prayer central. So that's, I didn't say that, but when liturgy of the hours is talked about, uh, morning and evening prayer central. Um, all right, Next. Yeah, meal grace is another way to live the power in the church that they offer us. Sundays, center on the Eucharist and the cycle of the liturgical year. Um, again, there's many devotions out there and I didn't say some of them kind of intentionally because there's all really, really good ones, right? But it's not for me to stand up here and to say which ones you need to do to be a good Catholic because that's, there's no official teaching in the church that says you must do this, this, and this or this devotion, this devotion, this devotion to be a good Catholic. Mm-hmm. There's things bigger than devotions, right? It's like sacraments. That's not a devotion, right? Like you go to Mass every Sunday, right? And you go to confession. I think it's uh, the official church teaching is maybe once a year, something like that. Like there's, there's official teachings like that. Um, but after that, it's kind of where the Lord leads you, right? And again, these devotions are helpful and effective insofar as they point you back to the sun, to the source of it all. So what makes a good Catholic? I didn't, I didn't intentionally not going to answer that question entirely because we're going to bite off more than we can chew today, right? Amen? Amen. Does anyone feel like their mouth's kind of like it's dripping out right now? <laughs> I know I could use some water right now. Um, to be liturgical in, in a phrase is to be, is to be plugged into the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to be liturgical, right? And you see how this plays off magnanimous sacrifice, right? So our liturgy, our entire liturgical spirituality points us right back to the Lord, the Paschal mystery who came, suffered, died, rose again, and is now seated in glory and sends the Holy Spirit to us to actually inspire us to live this magnanimous sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to have him transform us. That's, do you guys catch the synthesis there? And that's where it's all coming full circle. And that's why SPO has a charismatic and liturgical spirituality. I'm not saying what we do here is the only way. But I'm standing up here because I believe it's a darn good way. And it's in accordance with the church. And it leads us to an abundant and a full life. Yeah. Go get them. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's give it up for John again. <laughs>